Good morning. It's DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. Basketball tonight. We got two streaks on the line. BYU's playing tonight. I, I can't get into it. Portland's 0-4. I got nothing for you. BYU's won two in a row. They got 11 games. They, they had two games they didn't play because of COVID, but they've both been rescheduled. So they've got 11 games between now and when they play Gonzaga in the season finale. Can they win 13 in a row? No ifs, ands, or buts. No slip-ups. No oops. No. Go get it done. Portland's 0-4. They ought to win tonight. I, I don't have much more. I, I don't have much more for you. Sorry. Uh, the Utes are playing Washington State in Washington this weekend. They're 2-5. and five. I, no, I don't have much for you there either. The Aggies, a little intriguing. I will check the score. I'll be focused on the Jazz game. There's more Jazz fans than Aggie fans. Know where your bread is buttered. But I can't help but watch. I followed the Mountain West forever. I still follow San Diego State. The Aggies are 9-0. and oh. And I thought they'd be good. Um, Tim Lacombe made a good point. We're going to replay the interview for you uh, coming up here later in the hour. That, you know, losing Sam Merrill, they had to change the way they play. You don't think they're going to fall off the map, but you don't think they're going to have the edge that they have. And, man, they just took CSU apart, beat them by 17. So CSU, maybe a little bit of a paper tiger. They had the big comeback win against San Diego State, but it might have been one off and a little fluky. Uh, And CSU might be more an NIT-level team. And Utah State might be more an NCAA-level team. Now, they got to keep doing it. they got to prove it tonight. I think they will. Uh, I expect them to go to 10-0. These two coaches know each other. They coach together at Colorado State. Um, and they got a little bit of a rivalry. I kind of went into that yesterday morning. I won't rehash all of that. But I think it helps keep the edge. And uh, Craig Smith, his 5-0 uh, after not getting the CSU job when it was open and he wanted it, and he didn't get it, and he got the Utah State job, and he's now 5-0 and against CSU. And, you know, human nature plus uh, the nature of basketball coaches, <laughs> that's important to him. <laughs> he wants to be 6-0. If you think he's going to be sleepwalking through this game and taking it for granted, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Don't believe it for a second. Now, as far as the Jazz, while well, the uh, Aggies are trying to get to 10-0 and in the Mountain West and 12 straight wins, the Jazz will be trying to win their seventh straight against the Pelicans. And again, things that don't really matter, and yet they kind of do just because of human nature. The Jazz are playing the Pelicans on TNT tonight. Now, normally... If you play a team twice in three days and you really humiliate them the first time, you think there's a little bit of a risk. There is a talent gap, and you got to acknowledge that. The Jazz have more talent. But there is a risk that, you know, having just beaten them, you take them lightly, and the second game goes differently. I mean, that, that risk is out there. But, number one, there's a huge talent gap. Uh, number two, the Jazz have already uh, turned in some subpar performances, and I think they're pretty focused on that right now. And so I don't think they will. And then I think when you put people on TNT, it's national TV. And, you know, everything is national TV, right? The Jazz were on NBA TV Tuesday night, and that was national TV. And League Pass is national TV. National TV doesn't mean what it used to. But I think what matters is these Thursday games. It's like Monday Night Football. The whole league is watching because it can. You know, there aren't as many games. Now, the league's gone away from just having two games. You can have five or six games on a Thursday. But the fact is, most of the league is watching. The studio show is hilarious slash controversial slash bizarre. You got to turn it on because, you know, Barkley might be kissing a farm animal. I mean, you never know. So 
I think the Jazz bring it because they're on TNT and they know there'll be a lot of eyeballs on them and and they want to have a rep and they want to be seen as the elite so they got to turn in a good performance that's how it works so I expect they will and they are on a roll right now and they are playing really well and check the standings they do look like they're elite they've gone from being a team that's top 8 or 10 to now I think a team where you can say hey they look like they're top 4 or 5 you know that's not the same as going to be a number one. There's still a big gap and still a lot to be accomplished, but it does feel like this team is taking a step forward, and I expect they continue to take it tonight. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider, stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider, joins us every week. Uh, we talked to him about several things, and we're going to replay it for you right now because he came on late in the show. Um, we're going to talk about streaks, and obviously uh, we talked to him on Tuesday morning, and the, the Aggies and the Jazz have both won since then, so their streaks are longer um, by one game. But the point holds. Here is Steve Cleveland with PK and I. Steve, good morning. Good morning, guys. I am curious about multiple things, but one thing I wanted to talk to you is about coaching a team on a streak. Uh, Jazz with uh, five in a row going into the Pelicans game. Aggies with eight in a row going into the CSU game. And the players must be aware of this stuff. How much do you address it? And also negative when it's a losing streak in that. How do you talk to players about that? Because you know it can get on their mind for better or for worse. I think you, you educate them. And, and teams that are on well, – we'll look at the positive side that are on the winning streak. And uh, as you meet and watch film and prepare and have conversations with your team, you're talking about those things that you've done well. And, you know, going forward, every team that you play has a different challenge for you, you know, whether matchup, size, quickness, uh, a younger team versus a team that's maybe more mature, has lots of transfers. So, you know, I, I remember in, in, in my dealings with teams and we, once we got it going, I, I know there was a time when we had like 40-some, we had won 40-some games in a row at home. And that became something that people were talking about. And, and and you can't avoid that when people talk about it or read about it, but you got to go back to what were those things that put us in that position to do those things, and that's what you remind them. I mean, there's the the execution of an offense or a defense are, are all really important, and but it really comes down to winning and losing is the intangibles, and you know have, having a great attitude, uh, get your mind right. You know, being confident even when things are going against you. The intangibles, the the, the work ethic, that the you know, the willingness to continue to compete in every possession. It's usually the intangibles that sustain long streaks. Because if you have a long streak of something, we're talking from a positive mindset, means you probably got pretty good players. You prepared the guys, but winning and losing is going to come down to those that you know dive and get the loose ball or block out or, you know, the things that we don't talk a lot about but have a whole lot to do with winning. So 
for those teams that are doing that, you know, I, I would say this to the coaches, especially, is enjoy it. And I think we get so caught up and we're so stressed out and it becomes more about losing than it is about continuing to play well and winning. So those are special times and every coach has them uh, when, uh, you know, whether it's in college or it's in, in the pros or wherever it's at. But you're constantly reminding them and when you watch film about why we've had success and that we need to continue down that path. And then when you see things break down a little bit, you obviously bring that to their attention. But you don't need to talk a lot about it. They know. But I think if you control the intangibles, the effort, the attitude, the selflessness on a floor, making an extra pass, doing those kinds of things, uh, you, you, you keep yourself in a position to extend those positive winning streaks and when things are going well. How much is it about your team as opposed to the team you're playing? Well, I, I think the majority of it is your team because you, you don't have a lot of control over that other team. Now, what you've done, you've watched a ton of film, and maybe you've already played them one time, and so you learn things about their teams and how they react to certain things. But I think most of all, you're trying to find out what the strengths of your team are and put your players in positions where they can be successful. And it seems pretty simple, but at the end of the day, whatever you're doing offensively uh, may not match up real well with somebody that you're playing. You know, maybe their strengths, they've got great size, you're going to have a hard time, you know, guarding at the rim, and you're going to have a hard time guarding them uh, uh, on the perimeter because they've got great guards. So you assess the individual opponent that you're playing and uh, and then when you do that, it gives people confidence. It just you everybody's more confident when they're prepared, and when they're not prepared. And you know, as a coach, every coach can look back and go, "Wow, I didn't do a great job in preparation." Doesn't mean we didn't spend two or three hours doing something. We just had the wrong focus. We we didn't see this coming. And as I've watched college basketball today, and I look at the close games. And, yes, it does come down to execution. But what it really comes down to is if it's defensively, just having the toughness, again, the mindset that we're going to get a stop no matter what. Guys are connected defensively. Guys are connected offensively. So, yeah, it may be a special play, but oftentimes it comes down to the intangibles and making sure guys are competing and together and uh, are being selfless and unselfish on the floor and things that you've done. You know, I find that sometimes, and I'm, I was guilty of this, and I'm sure other coaches are too, you, you tend to overcoach. You know, things are going, we're going we're gonna to overcoach. You know what, let's just get them to do the same things even better. You know, focus on the simple things and get them to do that at the highest level repetitiously, and that's where they'll get their confidence. Uh, when you're, and I, I remember making these mistakes as a young coach, and even at times in college, trying to overthink the game and trying to do something new that seldom is. I mean, calling a timeout for an out of bounds play, yeah, you're going to do that once in a while. But uh, to change courses, to change the, the philosophy of how you're going to play in the heat of the moment, never really works that well. You, you've got to just stay with what you know is true, what you practiced, what you've perfected. And uh, and you go forward. It's not guys don't talk about that stuff a lot. You know that that's more for the media and the fans to talk about it. But you will on occasion in a team meeting. You know they'll look at each other. They know you don't have to talk about it. They know exactly what's happening here and who they're playing. 
So the Utes had a uh, – their last coaching change was painful. Everybody transferred. The new staff had to come in. And you can't be more more ground zero than those guys building from the from the ground up. And they had a couple of NCAA teams, a, a Sweet 16 and second round in there. Then they had a couple of NIT teams. Then they had a couple of teams that are right at 500 in the league, barely over 500 outside the league. And now they're five and six, and they're two and five, and they lost three out of four at home. It's clearly going the wrong way, both in the small picture and in the big picture. Coaches stick together, if I've learned anything over time. All coaches, almost all coaches, unless it gets really personal, they sympathize with each other's struggles. They know how hard it is. Is there any advice you could give? Is there anything you could say that could help turn this thing around? Because it is really going the wrong way. You know what? we've We've all kind of been through this. And I think the first thing you do as a staff is you really look at you know what you believe, who you are as a team, and in the technical part of it, and making sure that that uh, we haven't missed something. And you know, if, if the system seems to be good, then the system is good. And then, then obviously you're looking at players and looking at their mindset. And, and it's hard for players. We live in such a public world now with the you know just social media all, and all the different platforms of social media they can see and be assessed and evaluated as soon as the game's over. That's not something I had to deal with a great deal with in terms of my players. But if, if there's anything, the most important thing you can do as a coach is really, really go out and connect with your guys. And, and, I, and you've got to know your guys. And you could, this is when your assistant coaches play a significant role. And listen, I, I was in the business long enough to know that when you have a staff where an assistant coach has another agenda than what the head coach has, uh, it's hard during these times to get kids to believe and to sustain it. I, I think the, the best thing that UConn can do right now, the only thing they can control, is to, to focus on the positive things and then look at the negative things. Where do we got to be better? But at, at the end of the day, that coaching staff has to be up and positive and believing uh, rather than scowling and yelling and screaming and blaming. That never works. It never works. Not with young people today. And you both know, you've lived long enough, the, the athlete today is different. They, they need, they want to, to know, be in the know. They want to be connected. They want to have a relationship with their head coach. I, I hear that all the time uh, from people that, you know, that a player is really connected to an assistant coach but doesn't have a relationship with the head coach. That's a long-term mistake. Not, not that you, they, of course the coaches are going to spend more time than the head coach, but a head coach really has to embrace their guys, embrace the fears that maybe they're going through or that maybe he's going through. And, and when you do that, you get that kind of honesty, uh, it brings out something, the intangible things that you can't teach, that there's something inside that says we're going to compete at a level we've never competed at. And that they may well play better than they've ever played and still lose due to the fact that, you know, they're playing somebody better or more experienced or whatever the circumstances. End of the day, you know, there's going to be someone to evaluate that coach, that team. And we know in the last 18 months, there hasn't been a lot of change because of COVID. Uh, We're kind of coming out of this COVID. And there's been a lot of unfairness in terms of teams and what they can do and can't do. Everybody's had a different issue. But uh, I, I think first and foremost is your connection with your guys. 
and getting them to believe and be positive with them. It, when, when it's hard and tough, it's not the time to about screaming and yelling and finding fault. It's a time to come together and look at this from a different perspective and support them. And even in the little, and you know, in practice, little things happen. Letting guys know, reinforce the good, reinforce that's good. That's what we want to be. Um, but at the end of the day, this is a bottom line business, even in college and pros, where over a period of time, if things don't work out, they make changes. I've lived through that a lot. You know, you stay in this business long enough, you live through those kinds of things. And uh, but I, I gotta believe that uh, that they'll do those things and and. You know, we like to see Utah turn this thing. I mean, they, they don't have a lot of depth, and, uh, you know, they, they've got a they're, – they're shooting shooting the ball inconsistently at times. Sometimes those aren't things you can fix during the season. So, you, you know, you better look at the ends, the, the defensive ability of the team, the rebounding, loose balls, the, the intangibles, the things that really make a difference in winning games. If you're, if you're not shooting the ball well, then – you know, make sure that there's the one or two guys that can shoot or they're doing the shooting, but everybody can defend and, uh, and and try to turn this thing. They've had some good wins, uh, but they, they certainly this year it's been tough. And I, it's really hard for me to evaluate what this whole COVID thing can, it could be and what it looks like. Uh, I haven't been able to, Fresno State, I haven't been able to go to practices and go public there, but I've talked to the coaches and they've had a lot of experiences with COVID there and it's, it's been very destructive. And so I think everybody, coaches, fans, everybody needs to be uh, a little more mindful of and, and maybe a little more tolerance with the fact that this last two years coaching has is, is not been an easy thing. Recruiting has not been an easy thing. It doesn't mean that coaching changes won't take place. They will. And if they're justified, they should. But uh, I, I am glad I'm not coaching during this environment. <laughs> Because I can't even imagine some of the things that guys are going through where you don't play for two or three weeks because of uh, COVID protocol. So you look at the way Mark Pope has built his program, and it's heavy on transfers, right? I think this year where they start in three transfers, guys that just come into the program for, well, Barcelona's been there a couple years, but the, the guard and the center, this is going to be it. And you know, he's having a fair amount of success, and he did it last year, too, brought in. It's in a little, little bit of an unusual situation. Toulson was in the program and left, and bringing in him and a couple other guys and these UVU guys, and he's had the success. Whereas you look at Utah, and they've had a slew of guys transfer out. They have brought in a couple of guys off the top of my head, uh, Bearfield, and then they had a kid from uh, Long Beach State a couple years back, a little smaller guard, and he was a player. So I'm wondering, uh, something's got to change with Utah. And, and, you know, when you came into town, uh, Utah was at its, literally at its zenith, you know, going to the Final Four and all that stuff. And so you, we saw that, and I was covering the team for the paper. But it was a different era. I'm wondering if you think that, Maybe one way to to rejuvenate the program is to start looking like Pope did and see if you can start bringing in some more kids on a one or two year basis. Well, I I completely agree with that. I mean, I, 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 we lived through that. I mean, when we came to BYU, you know, six or seven kids went on missions. That there was no, you know, there was just a couple of guys in the program. And I, I can remember telling my staff, I said, "Listen, number one, not one of us has any Division One experience as a coach." 
players, yes, but not, not as a coach. And I said, I'm just looking at things from the outside. If we're going to fix this, it has to be fixed with transfers, and whether that's a junior college transfer or a college transfer, whatever the circumstances were. And I started thinking about, you know, who, who we ended up, you know, you, know, you, you look back and, and you start thinking about, uh, you know, Terrell Day, Travis Hansen, Trent Whiting, Kevin, I mean, Keena Young, Arujo. I mean, we, we could name 10, 12, 13 people that we brought transfers in because we knew we didn't have the time to deal with the, uh, the mission, the two-year mission piece, as well as the time to develop players that would, could take two or three years. And, and we just felt strongly about that. And we all had connections there because we had all come from places and coached at places where, you know, we developed kids that were transfers. And so it was the piece that was important for us. We had to do that. I mean, all, there's no way that we, we, can, we can do this. And you start looking, <clears throat> even Ron's, <clears throat> Ron's lease was only there for a year. Uh, Brian Dignan, a young man that came in, uh, Terrell Day, who came in, all of them had an influence. Travis Hansen was a junior college transfer. Uh, you, you go down the road and you start looking at, at the people that we brought in, and it allowed us to be successful sooner than we could get, because we couldn't get a high school kid in the state when we came, because uh, Utah was so dominant, had their hands on everybody, and we were just trying to prove that we belonged. So in the meantime, we did it this way. Well, let's, let's go back now, I'll go for, move forward, and it's 2021, and we're, we're looking at pretty soon, in a, in a few months, where every young man who's in a program can leave after a year, one time, without penalty, and play. So, BYU, you're right. BYU uh, had Toulson last year. He had a, a veteran team that came back. And, and, and when you take a look at BYU's team this year, and you look at Barcello, Harms, Everett, Harvard, those were all transfers. Now, you know, so obviously some of them are from, two of them are from UVU, one's from Arizona. Well, you, you take those guys away and, and go the more traditional way with high school kids, you're not who you are. And, you know, Haas and Childs were in the program for a long time, but Toulson comes in and gives them a huge spark. And so, yeah, I, I, I fully believe that you have, you have to, to tap into the transfer pool. I mean, every year you've got to have your eyes and ears. And everybody's got to be open to when you go out and recruit. You're not just recruiting and watching guys play. You're, you're looking at other programs and seeing people that are unhappy and want to leave. And, and if, if they're the right people and they fit into your system. And I, and I think what happens, I'll just tell you this, my experience, when you bring in guys that have come from community colleges or have come from another institution, it's not always been a bad thing, but typically something was wrong. And they have something to prove. And when you get a group of guys like that that are all on the same page, I, I, I look at this BYU team, and I've watched them play five or six games. And, you know, they're not, they're not a great offensive team. I mean, they're not putting up great numbers. They're not, there's not 20 and 30-point nights. But this team has a toughness to them, which I, I uh, look at and say, you know, when you come from somewhere else, and things aren't right, you, you, your mind's different. I, I'm, I'm going to go here and make a point. I'm going to transfer. I'm going to defend. I'm going to do the things i got to do. And the thing I like about Mark's team 
is they playing with a sense of urgency. I mean, they, every one of them individually has something to prove. Barcelo left Arizona. He wanted to be somewhere else. That coaching staff did a great job. You don't think it's important for him to come to BYU and be successful and let those guys know that he could, could have played for them if they had given him a chance? I'm not saying that's his thoughts. I'm just saying that's a potential scenario. You know, you're in harms who played at Purdue. And, you know, he had a good career there, but something wasn't right. He's ready to leave. He's motivated. And you've got a coaching staff that has played all over the country, uh, collegially and professionally. And I just think there's a sense of urgency with this team. I mean, I, I don't think this is a great offense. I, I love what they do offensively. I love the attack mode of ball screens and back cuts and all the action away from the ball. I love what they do. But, you know, this isn't a top 10 or top 20 team offensively. But I'll tell you this, defensively, they they have really, really ratcheted it up from last year. And I I just think it's they've made it really difficult on opponents. Uh, This is a team that really seems together and give the credit to the coaching staff and to the players for understanding how that works. And there's just, there's just a culture there right now where you bring guys in that all have something to prove and you get all get on the same page. There's a different energy there. And I think that's what you have. At, I mean, I had a conversation with Mark Pope a year ago. And it was just a, just a – I was in town and we just chatted things about the team and how well they were playing. And he just casually said to me, I don't think I don't think people realize how good this next year's team is going to be. And he said, "We'll see what happens and what falls out." But even he knew, and maybe too because he'd watch Harvard, you know, who was one of his players. And you look at the kid now, and he's having an impact. He, you know, every, you know, the, all of the players that he brought from his own. He knew what their capability was, and that gives you an advantage too when you get transfers who you've already coached. Uh, that lends itself to. Uh, a really, really, really positive situation in the locker room and on the floor. But this is a together team. I mean, they're they're eleven and three because they're defending, and uh, and and not to say they don't have really, really good, solid offensive principles. But what these guys are defending and rebounding, you play, you watch that last game. There was a sense of urgency, and you can get teams to play with a sense of urgency for you know thirty, thirty-five minutes a game. You're going to have success. And uh, so they, they're doing the right things. They got the right people with the right mindset. And, uh, and they're playing with, with a, a sense of urgency every time they come out on the floor. So I like this team. I think they're an NC2A team. Hopefully no one gets hurt and they can move forward. Two really good wins on the road. Uh, both those games they could have easily lost, probably should have lost. Uh, but give credit to them for getting stops in the second half and uh, their size uh, at the rim has been effective, but those were two two good wins that uh, that team needed to move forward. Steve, we got to run. We appreciate the time. Thanks for talking a little basketball, and we'll talk to you again next week. All right, guys. Take care. Have a good week. There's Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider. When we return, Tim Lacombe, former Utah and BYU basketball staffer, former assistant coach at the Y, and now doing the Jazz pre-half and post-game shows. You hear him tonight on the, the Jazz and the Pelicans. He's coming up next. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. 
From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ PK, I want to remind you, Valentine's Day is not far away, and flowers make the perfect gift. Jimmy's Flowers, a longtime partner with The Zone, can make it easy by visiting them at jimmysflowers.com. Remember, Valentine's is on Sunday this year. Jimmy's Flowers at jimmysflowers.com. Time to welcome you Tim Lacombe, Utah Jazz Radio Studio Analyst. You hear him on the pre-half and post-game shows with Jake Scott, his former BYU and Utah staff member, and a rock star in his free time. Tim, good morning. Good morning, my good men and good friends. What is the biggest to this call every week? <laughs> what is the biggest gig you've ever played? I'm very curious about this. Dave Rose told put- me. Dave Rose told me I have to see you. He said you have the whole persona that he says when he gets up there, he's not a college basketball coach who sings. You he's gotta see. Star. You gotta see the persona. You gotta see the way he fills a room with his personality. Maybe our band could be the Plaza Band this year for the playoffs. If there is such a thing. Yeah, uh, there has been, yeah. No, 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 I'm saying with in, COVID, right? In the pandemic times, yeah. Oh, oh this yeah. year. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. But you got radio work to do, so I don't know how you can do it. <laughs> That's true. Um, no, but biggest gig we ever played, we won. Um, and I will say a little bit by Sutterfuge, we won the Battle of the Bands in Utah or excuse me, in Texas, in the, little, in the town I lived in. And our football stadium, my high school football stadium, was 20,000 in Plano. And July 4th, we won the right to play that that fireworks show. So they set us out, up out there on the 50-yard line. The place was crazy. And we got to play a couple songs. Um, we played Pretty Woman by Van Halen and dedicated the Statue of Liberty. What do you mean by Van Halen? It's not a Van Halen tune. Well, but the one we played is. <laughs> I mean, I, I know I know rock history there, Schmelby. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so that answers your question. <laughs> I was on with Scotty, and they said, you know, they call Frank Dolce the human detour, and they call me Timmy Tangent now because we can never get work done. We just start talking about stuff. Well, let's get some work done right away. More surprising win streak to you. The Jazz winning six in a row. The Aggies winning 11 in a row. I think the Aggies winning 11. Um, I mean, as ecstatic as I am about where the Jazz are right now, with Sam Merrill leaving and being that guy up there, you know, for what he did for that program, um, I thought for sure, even with Kata, you know, I thought – with the freshman guards and stuff, there was going to be a little dip. And more than anything, they, they've kind of changed a little bit of their identity. They're, they're all of a sudden now the smash mouth team was really guarding and 
um, getting lifts from everywhere. And I didn't get to see the game last night because uh, obviously doing the Jazz game, but just watching the score, I mean, that was never a game. And Craig Smith's done a phenomenal job. I would, if I was a real estate agent, I would start sending cards to his house. <laughs> And trying to see if he would pick me to sell it because I think that thing's going to go up for sale pretty soon. Hmm. So that's sort of a uh, dark cloud then over a silver lining here because they're doing so well. And well, but that's kind of how it works, right? With smaller schools like uh, this, um, yeah. People but come I mean, in that, and chop them up. Okay, but then that logic, Mark Few would have left a long time ago. True, but um, I think Utah State's got a ways to go. I mean, they've done great things, but... they got a ways to go to get Gonzaga now, but how about Gonzaga 15 years ago? Yeah, I just don't know if it's a destination location. We'll see. Maybe Craig, maybe Craig will change that narrative, but... Well, Logan I think has it's... has been a... kind of a pond hopper for years, and I don't see that changing. Uh, I mean, you Stacy left, Morrill stayed, but he was more along the end of his the end of the line, and he had local ties growing up in Utah and having family here. He spoke of that, of being able to get down to Salt Lake to see his mother and all that stuff. Uh, so I, I get your point. I think what it boils down to, more often than not, is cash. Oh, cash is king, dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what is the new school <laughs> going to like offer? <laughs> well, I mean, it Dude. is. It is. And so what does the new school offer, and what does Utah State counter if with with anything? I mean, he's good. There's no doubt about it. He's good. No, he's blown, my, he's blown me away with, you know, this would, be what, this would be three straight years to get to the tournament, right? Yep. Yep. And uh, last year they had the automatic bid. It's pretty awesome. I mean, it's, it's really hard to do, man. And, and it's interesting because I think Utah State has kind of taken that BYU role in in the Mountain West Conference that they're they're just different than everyone else. You know, they they play a little different brand of ball. Um, you know, you got to come to altitude to play them here, and uh, and I think that it's a uh, you know, that was one of the things that we loved about the Mountain West Conference we were in. It was there, you know, UNLV and New Mexico, everybody had a style, and ours was just a tad bit different. And it, and so it was different playing us than everybody else, and we kind of have an advantage there. And then we went to the WCC, and everybody played the same, played like we did. And, um, you know, and it was, there wasn't a great advantage there. So the Utah Jazz have won six in a row. Are they going to hang with the Clippers and the Lakers in the battle for the one, two, and three seeds? Can anyone join them? Will they drop back to another group? And if so, what team or teams would be in that group? Uh, I think that, yes, I do believe this team is definitely in the hunt for – I'm still going to say two and three. I mean, I just think the Lakers at the end of the day, when it comes right down to it, will probably be one. Um, minus injury, you know, an injury to LeBron or AD or something. Um, and, but I, that, at that point, I think it's Jazz Clippers. Uh, and then from there, really, it is a, it's a coin flip. Um, and you kind of have to just look around and see what, you know, 
I wasn't overly impressed with Denver in comparison to last year. Um, I think they they're missing Jeremy Grant enormously. Uh, I think Tory Craig was good for them, uh, and, and I just don't know if they've got enough around those two guys um, to be up in that conversation. I think Phoenix, you know, with Chris Paul and, and Booker, uh, have a chance to possibly kind of be up in that conversation. But it's pretty clear cut that that you know you know you got the Lakers, Clippers, and Jazz. I think that's the upper crust of the West, and um. And I can't help but like be giddy about the way the Jazz are playing. Not just you know the, the success they're having, but the way they're doing it is is really kind of fun to watch. Watching them in the first game against New Orleans, it really struck me, and I think I've known this, but I think it was certainly highlighted and underlined in red or yellow or whatever, is that, man, they have just got so many offensive weapons. And when these guys are cooking, it's basically an onslaught of offense. Yeah, and what's awesome about it is they don't really, with really as, as good as they're kind of playing defensively right now across the board too. Um, you know, it's it's a different style. They don't have to come down and run a whole lot of action. They're getting so much stuff right away, really early, being the number one transition team. And I still think there's room to grow. Um, obviously, not from number one, but within the team, I think. You know, I think they they still can emphasize pushing it more throughout the game. I think they push it really well early, and I think they push it good out of out of half. And then I think there's some lapses there. But um, but you're right. Like they're they're in my mind they they have the best lineup of shooters across the board. Um, and I think that the. Uh, it's kind of starting to feel like when I started watching the Warriors play, you know, when they kind of that style that they brought that was just so much more fun and new uh, to the NBA. And I think the Jazz are kind of going in that direction. It's kind of pushing things in a different direction. I know the Jazz are the only NBA team right now that are shooting 40 or more threes a game and making uh, 40% or higher from three. Um, those are numbers that really translate, and they they certainly translate because I don't think it is – I don't think they need to make 23s a night to win, if that makes sense. Uh, I think there's other ways for them to win, but the 23s that you know, we've seen now five times is just icing on the cake. I suspect at some point in your career you told a group of basketball players five passes before you launch a shot – and there's certainly something to that and making the defense switch sides and all that and, and opening them up and getting an easy shot. And certainly it's fun to watch the Jazz put an opposing team in the blender. And the ball's whipping around and they're trying to rotate and they can't possibly keep up. But there is also something to the, hey, if we get the ball up court in five or six seconds and we can launch a three – and it's a good look, let's do it, because we're not likely to get a better a better shot than that. And they took some of those. How, in a moment, is a player supposed to decide which is the better thing to do? What is the key that they're supposed to be reading so they don't get a look from uh, the coaching staff when they come back to the sideline? Well, I think it's that's what I've been really impressed with, is, is I don't feel like you know there's really any, unless it's late in a shot clock, or if a guy does, you know, gets a heat check, 
I, I don't feel like the the shot select. I think the shot selection has been terrific. Um, what the Jazz have to continue to focus on is catch and shoot threes. And what I love is every single guy now is um, able to kind of start the, as you said, the blender. And really, the key to starting the blender for for this team is less action, less pick and roll, and more direct line drives that require help. And I think we saw it last night. Like, the Pelicans were caught time and time again guessing wrong, wrong, wrong. Uh, the, the dynamic play that, that Donovan made, and it reminded me, you guys will appreciate this, of the Julius Irving baseline drive where he went up and under and finished, you know, that, that one. Yep. You know, we've seen a million times. It was kind of like Donovan's move last night, but in the middle of it, he just went ahead and hucked that thing on a frozen rope right out to Bojan at the top. Um, but even on that play, you know, Pelicans all suck down and, and take away the drift pass to the corner, opposite corner, and drop like you should to take away any kind of diagonal pass to the opposite wing. But, you know, Donovan has the vision and the spacing is so good that he doesn't have to think about it. He knows where his guy is going to be. And that's where that's where this thing is really starting to click for the Jazz there. Quinn talked about it a lot last year as to why things weren't working great um, at times. And he's mentioned this year, you know, in, in the struggles, that spacing is a huge piece of that. And you have to be able to space the floor adequately so that you can utilize all these shooters. And I think they're doing like it's a clinic right now on how to do that. Have any concern about Gobert shooting under 50% from the free throw line right now? Oh, I would say, no, I, I, I don't sweat that to the point where, I mean, it's historically low for him. And I talked all year last year, everybody wanted to talk to me about, man, we've really blown it bringing Conley in here. You know, he's old, he can't do it anymore. And da, 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 da. Whereas, you know, there, there are peaks and valleys within seasons and careers. Um, I think it's something, you know, if anything, the thing I'm actually encouraged about is typically when Rudy's faced with something, uh, he deals with it. You know, he gets motivated by it. Uh, this is probably something that's not registering well with him, and he'll continue to work at it. He's certainly better than 40%. Um, but right now, he's getting, he, you know, that's the other piece of this. The Jazz are second last in the entire NBA at free throws attempted per game. And do you know who's dead last in free throws attempted per game? The Lakers. Yeah, which is interesting, right? Um, do the Jazz really – I mean, it doesn't necessarily – they're not like cra- – they're not driving it in there like old days and trying to get contact and finish. They're driving it in there to create uh, crowds and then, you know, kick it out to a guy who's wide open with his feet set that's shooting 40%. So it's a different it, – the whole thing is a different – it's a paradigm shift for like we to watch basketball. Um, and it's just like you said, DJ, yes – it wasn't five passes we required back in when I was coaching high school. It was eight. We had a play, we had a play called eight. <laughs> and and it was a motion. It was a pass and cut motion. And, and there had to be eight passes before a shot could be taken. And I told you, under Rick Majerus, it was like a sacred rite of passage to shoot the basketball. You shoot the basketball only after A, B, C, and D. Right? 
So this is all just a total shift in paradigm. But I've, I've said from the beginning of my time in basketball, and when I came to BYU, it was such an eye-opener to me, but an open shot in transition is an open shot. And if it's the right guy shooting it and it's open and he's in rhythm, fire away, you know. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing. Yeah, my high school, we only had a five passes because we sucked. If we tried to go eight, we would have turned it over for sure. So I think they probably just had to lower the number for us. That they was should have just let you ice, though. <laughs> that would have been a problem. So I'm, uh, I'm curious. The one thing is the game morphs and everything changes. I can remember asking Dave Rose when Jimmer started shooting from the logo. And yeah. it just like... I could just see Dave gritting his teeth before he answered it. He didn't want to say anything <laughs> negative about Jimmer, but it was just, man, he was old school and you just didn't do that. And boy, there was a part of him that died every time Jimmer took one of those shots. But then we start seeing in the pros and you start, you know, Damian Lillard's won a series from there and Steph Curry's hit a bunch of shots from there. Now LeBron is shooting from there. Is that the next thing for the Jazz that they get someone and basically turn it into a four on four game? Because they got someone who can hit from 35 feet and you got to go stand next to him and really open up the floor? I don't, I, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't see this as the same thing. Uh, again, this really does have paint principles to it. It's just not, you know, they want, the, the ball needs to get penetrated, to, whether it be by pass um, off a pick and roll or off a direct line drive. And really, you don't see a whole lot of you know, like you do with Lillard or Curry, you don't see just a lot of high ball screens guys coming off and jacking it. Like it because that's a that's an offense run for off the bounce threes mm-hmm. as opposed to what the Jazz are doing. And they're they're just trying to get that sacred cow of the catch and shoot three. And I mean it really is it's been so fun for me to watch because it's a totally it's a total twist and um, you know, I know David last night on the post game show we were talking, and he said, "You know, is this are the Jazz basically doing what the Rockets did from a numbers perspective, but with better shooters?" Um, I think the Rockets set the record with 1184 threes in a season um, last year. Is that right? Am I right there? Two years ago, I can't remember. I would have to look it up. I don't know that. Okay, but um, the. You know, the, the difference, though, is there. this isn't isolation. This isn't one guy man, holding the ball all the time. That ball's whipping around. Conley had 10 assists last night, you know, um, to two turnovers. Um, those are those are numbers that only have been seen since, you know, your high school team, DJ, hmm. when you did the five assists to one turnover uh-huh. for two years straight. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. okay. Uh-huh. I want to know... Who do you think? Who do you think looks better, all tatted up, Ingram or Clarkson? Clarkson, Homer. I'm a member of the Good Vibe Tribe myself. Okay. Yeah, I'm a Clarkson guy. In fact, you know I love his nickname. We call him JC. Hmm. I wonder why. I'm a big JC guy. 
Tim LaCombe joining us, Jazz Radio Studio Analyst, pre-half and post-game, former BYU and Utah staff member. Uh, speaking of catch-and-shoot guys, it seems like he is more willing to take the catch-and-shoot. When he first came here, he defaulted to putting the ball on the floor almost every time he got it. But someone's uh, encouraged him to do it, and, and to his credit, he's embraced it. Might be a little out of his comfort zone, but he's pretty good at it. I'm sorry, I missed who you said. Clarkson, JC. I'm still on oh, JC. Yeah, JC. yeah no, I think is. I think he's training no, he way might. more to catch and shoots than he used to. No, he he made an astute point early this year in one of the post games, and he talked about you know Quinn and staff really working with him to shave some shots out of his game and really work on being more efficient. So you don't see him. You really see him now. Um, you know he'll he'll tight curl and and get something in the paint. Or he'll drive that direct line drive all the way to the front of the rim, and then he's really uncanny about his ability to gather and pivot and find ways to score it. Uh, but I agree with you. I think I think he's kind of changed his shot chart, mm-hmm. and it's definitely for the better. Tim LaCombe, you'll hear him on the Jazz game. It's the Jazz and the Pelicans. 8 p.m. It's the Thursday TNT, second half of that Thursday night doubleheader, and uh, he'll be on the air at 7 o'clock. With, uh, with Jake for the pregame show. Tim, thanks for a few minutes. We appreciate it. Hey, thank you, guys. Always good to be with you. There's Tim Lacombe, Jazz pre-half and post-game. You'll hear him tonight with Jake Scott. 8 o'clock tip, so the pregame will start at 7. Coming up next, what is trending? All the headlines are on the way. Stay with us.